This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Elizabeth Dennehy. I played Lieutenant Commander Shelby on Star Trek Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer, and join with me today are the multi-talented Amy Nelson and the versatile Richard Marquez. How are you doing today? Wow, I am really liking these intros. Thank you very much. I am doing great today. And I was going to say, I had to, to throw in uh, something a little different for this Very one. nice. And Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, really well. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to do it. When you guys host, you give compliments to me as well. So might as well send it along. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> All right, so we do have a very special episode for you today, but before we get into that, we have some feedback from the Babel Conference uh, for episode 212, uh, which is Favorite Character Moments uh, Season 2. So Richard, I think you want to read the first comment? Sure. Uh, Christopher Littlefield said, Loved it. It's really nice to get it deeper and analyze this series. We didn't really spend a lot of time doing that back then. And I'm assuming back then he's talking about um, in the 80s. Uh, Earl Grey 1.0 versus oh uh-huh. no I think when he when he watched it in the 80s yeah. probably <laughs> oh oh I guess okay that makes more sense okay I thought he was talking about the old Earl Grey crew versus us but okay that's fine that, yeah okay cool yeah no right no podcast back in the 80s to endlessly dissect the episodes I guess exactly yeah. <laughs> Christopher Baca says, some really great picks. I really like Pen Pals, Elementary Dear Data, Q-Who, In Measure of a Man, When Riker Shuts Down Data. That is a great scene. Absolutely couldn't agree more. Those are very good scenes and good episodes. Season two is just chock full of so many good moments. It has a lot of great stuff, and he mentions Measure of a Man, which, of course, is widely considered the best step one of the best episodes of season two or the whole series and we didn't even mention any moments i think i might not have picked any because i thought you guys would pick some or it's just you know more common yeah because it is it's so well loved and everyone knows it we like to highlight those that maybe some people have forgotten i actually stay away from those when we do those episodes because like i mean obviously they're the more common ones and more liked ones so that's why i i, I always choose something outside of yeah. that usually yeah yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'll, I'll often do that just to to make sure we're you know giving some credit to episodes people don't think about quite yeah. as much mm. and get them to, to watch those. Well, we also got an email about that favorite character moment, season two um, episode, and that came from Chris Smith in Oklahoma. And Chris says, Justin had mentioned if any listeners would like to continue hearing the character moments of math in The Next Generation. And my first thought was, me, me, me. (laughs) Yes, I very much enjoyed the math commentary in season one and season two character moment shows. I love math myself, and I definitely cast my vote in for yes, please, Amy, continue finding those great math moments. Well, I am so excited to get that email. It really made my day, and I will continue finding those math moments for sure now so you guys are with it for the long haul what do you mean for sure for sure (laughs) well but the pressure's on to find it not only every season but every movie too so could we do like a bet or something like that if i find it first or you find it first justin (laughs) (laughs) no no I'll, i'll leave it to 
to Amy to to find those things. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there there must be something that you can use from every season. I right? am sure, and challenge accepted. Not that it's going to be a hard challenge because math is everywhere. Sure, I mean they're they're using lots of math and engineering to make the ship go. So. <laughs> Well, some of it's nonsense too. So, <laughs> well, yeah, they're making it up, but I mean, some of it's based. I on... I mean, it's basically techno babble to turn on and off the switch. <laughs> yeah, but I like to. I like to believe it. I want. So it was very it. interesting. Uh, we've got a lot of all of our uh, mentions feedback were from Chris's. So thanks, Chris's out there. Oh. Goodness, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> Every one of them was a Chris. Wow. Yeah, it's it was going on when I did postcards. Like there are so many Christophers on the Babel conference, and we just love you all. That's amazing. I didn't even think about that, but yeah. So people not named Chris, you can give us feedback on these episodes. It's okay. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so well, thank you so much, listeners, for your feedback on our last episode. And now we do have something very special for you. It is an interview with Elizabeth Dennehy, who played Commander Shelby in The Best of Both Worlds. And we're going to take you right into that interview now. Today on Earl Grey, we have a very special guest, Elizabeth Dennehy, who played Commander Shelby in two of the most important episodes in all of Star Trek, The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today. Oh, of course. My pleasure. So I just wanted to start off by asking um, a couple of questions. So how did your acting career start? And uh, did your father have anything to do with you becoming an actor? Oh, well, that's um, an interesting question. I always wanted to be an actor. As long as I can remember when I was a kid, I was always performing and singing and dancing. And my dad, um, you know, my parents had us when they were very young. So he was just trying to keep um, the family going, you know, doing odd jobs. He really, he didn't become a professional actor until I was about 16. But, um, you know, performing and seeing plays and acting was always a part of our lives. I mean, I can remember watching movies with him and him knowing every word to On the Waterfront. So um, for sure, it definitely was um, an influence uh, that, that, it was a viable job that it was considered a respectable profession. Definitely, um, you know, he, he set an example that, you know, this was a, this was something that one could do when he um, would go off in the summer and do summer stock and he would do plays. Um, you know, I saw that was the way he worked and none of my friends had that. Their fathers all had typical day jobs um, working in offices. And some of them would actually say to me, your, your dad is so lucky you know, with a kind of a wistful look in their eyes. And even though my dad wasn't around a whole lot, um, I thought we were lucky because he did what he loved. So, yeah, he, he definitely was an influence, I would say, um, that he, even before he was doing it professionally, he was always um, acting in community theater, doing dinner theater. He, it was always a part of our lives, him growing up, for sure. Excellent. Well, and I guess I should probably add, because I didn't say it specifically, um, that, that your father's Brian Dennehy, who, who um, you know, was, I guess, already pretty well known as an, as an actor when you were growing up, right? Um, well, he was known, like, on Long Island, you know, where I grew up. He, um, he when I was a, uh, in elementary school, we lived in a town called Amityville, Long Island, and it's pretty amazing when you think about it. A guy with three kids by the time he was 25, 26, um, you know, who was just doing any job he could to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. He was a, a meat trucker. He was a security guard in a motel. Um, he did, you know, jobs here and there. Um, he had a family before he had graduated from college. That He had this such a desire that he created a community theater group in Amityville called the Amityville Community Theater. And he did plays at the Amityville High School. And so we were always being um, dragged into being like kids in, in carousel. We would snow children. That was just our, our way of life for us. It wasn't until I was older that I realized um, that not everybody lived like this. Not everybody acted out musicals. Um, to the a album playing in the house. But my sisters and I, we were obsessed. You know, we would act out the entire 
Man of La Mancha. We would act out Funny Girl. We acted out all of the musicals um, growing up, and that was just normal for us. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. My dad had uh, Man of La Mancha on record, and we there was me and my two sisters, and we would act it out, too. That's so funny. Yeah, we would torture our family and make them sit and listen to us playing the entire score on a kazoo of a musical. Uh, oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yep, I would make my little brother sit down. Okay, you're going to watch us. <laughs> exactly. Jesus Christ Superstar was a big one. We used to act that out. And, um, and so when we were little, you know, we were naturally always doing the shows. I can remember running home from school in the fourth grade because they were doing Midsummer Night's Dream and I got cast as uh, Helena and the boy I had a crush on was Demetrius. So that oh. was really, really young. It was just such a part of our lives growing up. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think it was extraordinary until much later on, you know, when, and, um, and then when he was directing Funny Girl, I made him audition me for Fanny Bryce because I was obsessed. And, you know, we were cast as little fairies in The Tempest. We were always being cast in the shows. I remember being an urchin, a street urchin in Streetcar Named Desire. And to no grow up as a little kid and knowing huge passages of these plays, we were the no-neck monsters on Cat on the Hodgson Roof. We had no idea what the play was about. Um, but that it was just, what we did that was what we did on the weekends that was our team sport some families mm -hmm. go to football games or you know rooting for the home team this is what we did in our spare time growing up and I didn't realize that you know we had no money and you know he probably shouldn't have been indulging in a hobby like this um, but it, obviously he needed this he needed mm -hmm. to do this in order to live and be happy um, yeah. you know and, and so then uh when, so he was not famous until when I was 16, he did, um, around about that time, they did these showcases in New York. And he started getting into the showcase scene in New York. He got cast as an understudy in Streamers, which was at Lincoln Center. Um, I believe Mike Nichols directed it and mm -hmm. went on. And then Mike Nichols recommended him for jobs here and there. And he got cast in... Uh, Semi-Tough, which was a movie starring Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson about football. And he got cast in as like the crazy guy who dangles this girl from the, the, the roof of a house party. You know, mm -hmm. total like Michael Penn, Jim Belushi, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio kind of role, like the unhinged crazy guy. And after that, he never stopped working. So then about... It really still still took a really long time for him to be a household name. He did the movie 10 where he was the bartender. People started really noticing him then. And I think around about after 10, he didn't have to audition for jobs anymore. He just got offers. But still, he was he was always like that guy. You know that guy. Like people don't know him by that name. He his, his name. They know him as that that guy, you know, right? that, right. Big, that big guy. Because I still get people coming up to me thinking he's, Charles Durning or Brian Keith, um, you know, it's pretty funny when people say, I thought your father died. And I'm like, no, you're thinking of Charles Durning or you're thinking of Brian oh. Keith. <laughs> actors, <laughs> no. I mean, actors, people who are in the theater, but people who, um, you know, sometimes I go to conventions and pe people don't know his him by his name. You know, he's a character actor. That's very common for character actors. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's kind of interesting because I feel like I've I've known um, you know his his name and and his work for as as long as I can remember. I mean, I'm I'm fairly young, but I I I, I guess I didn't realize that it wasn't as much of um, you know a known name to to necessarily a lot of people, a lot of uh, like the general audience out there. Yeah, that's kind of how it progresses. You know, it's like uh, it's like that old thing that they say. You know. Um, uh, you know, who is Brian Dennehy? Uh, get me Brian Dennehy, get me a Brian Dennehy type, and then who is Brian Dennehy? You know, that's mm. kind of how the trajectory works. Because I mm. have people come to me and say, I haven't seen him in a long time. What's he been doing? But he's never stopped working. He does a lot of theater. He does, he loves theater. He mostly loves theater. So, mm -hmm. um, the last thing, you know, he does, um, Blacklist. He's worked on oh. uh, a couple of episodes of Blacklist, but the last thing he did was um, uh, Endgame at the Long Wharf Theater, 
with um, Reggie Cathy. So, I mean, he's always working. He's going to be 80 in July, you know? Wow. Wow. Cool. Uh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. So he lives for work. He loves it. That's great to be active at that, especially at that age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It, it really uh, keeps him going. He loves it. Awesome. Well, um, hey, Elizabeth, this is Richard. Uh, so we have a group called the Babel Conference, and we actually had a couple people ask questions that they might want uh, want you to answer. Um, so our first guy was is uh, Tim. I'm sorry, our first commenter is Tim Hands, and he asked, "Hi, Elizabeth, were you a fan um, of Star of Star Trek or very familiar with Star Trek before you were offered the part for uh, Commander Shelby?" And how did you prepare for the character after you got it? Oh, that's a good question. I was not a fan of Star Trek. I got to be, I'm going to conf- make a big confession here. I, I went to an all girl Catholic school and truthfully, the people who were into sci-fi and Star Trek were kind of nerds. <laughs> and now it's so amazing because you go to these Star Trek conventions and the people are all dressed in, up in costumes and stuff. And now it's like kind of cool. Cosplay is kind of cool. But back in like the 70s, people who were into Star Trek were kind of like, you know, the nerds and the geeks. And I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be, uh, you know, cool. So, no, I was never into I was never into I was really into English stuff like Shakespeare and uh, upstairs, downstairs and the six mm-hmm. wives of Henry VIII. I was a real Anglophile and I loved um, I loved stuff like that. But sci-fi, I don't know, it just it never interested me. So funnily enough, when I went to the audition, I had just moved to California, just moved to LA. Um, I was 28 and I moved I never wanted to move to LA because I was a serious actress. I didn't want to do sitcoms or, you know, TV, you know, typical theater snob. And uh, moved to uh, L.A. and it was just an audition. It was just a job. And when I got the part, I was like, okay, whatever. And I remember when I first started um, working, Jonathan Frake said to me, you have no idea what this is, do you? And I was like, no, I don't. I didn't know who Riker was. I didn't know anything about. And I think that that was a really good thing because I think I would have been too nervous had I known if I knew, um, you know, that I was going to be being interviewed, you know, 30 years later. I mean, that's, it's pretty remarkable. I can't think of another franchise uh, in existence where you have that kind of um, interest and legacy. So no, I had no idea. And in preparation for it, um, I think, remember, this is like back in 91, so there's no internet. There were no computers. There was no question of watching old shows. Um, and I didn't know that this was the first time Riker's authority had ever been challenged. But I think that was a good thing. I think it was good that I wasn't prepared, that I was this hotshot coming in and telling everybody how wrong they were and how stupid they were. Had I known, I think I would have been too nervous. Well, that's interesting you talk about that because one of the um, questions was let's see oh michael gillam peckett says did you ever receive any hate mail or criticism because that you were mean to Riker? i mean was there any backlash from that this is a great question what's so interesting about this is how much things have changed since, since then back in the day when i was 28 30 years ago um people were like oh you were such a I hated you. I never got hate now, but people uh-huh. were like, you know, you were really, I didn't like the way you talked to them, but you were right. You were right. You knew your stuff. Very resentful. They would give me, mm. give Shelby the credit, but they didn't like my manner. Now, think about how much has changed about women being able to be bosses and be mm-hmm. smart and tell people what they're doing wrong. Now I get nothing but mad respect. It's really amazing how much has changed in 30 years. I looked at Shelby like she was a straight A student. She was the kid in the class with her arm up going, ooh, 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 pick me. I know the answer. I know the answer. And they're annoying, but yet you've got to applaud the fact that they care and they're so zealous 
and that they uh, those people really are so passionate about what they know and their knowledge. And now everything has totally changed. You know, everybody's telling people you need to applaud um, women and let them be the bosses and let them lead the way and give them respect. So a lot when I go to um, uh, conventions now completely different people like yeah you tell them you really knew what you were doing it's really amazing how, how it's changed everybody's become a feminist <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's kind of interesting also because for me I've become a, a Star Trek fan more recently so I first um, you know saw the next generation and, and those episodes probably you know, seven or eight years ago, something like that. And the first time I saw it and I saw Shelby, I was like, what, what is this that's going on? You know, we have this, this crew that we love and we love Riker and what he does. And who is this person that's, that's challenging him? And it took me kind of rewatching it to, to really have more, more respect for that and understand it. Mm -hmm. And now when I, when I rewatch it, I really kind of appreciate where she's coming from. And it's like, there's this really urgent situation going on mm -hmm. and she has the expertise and it's needed to to resolve the situation and get a lot further than they could with without Shelby. So I feel like her her attitude is necessary because she's impatient to get it done because their whole existence is at stake, right? Yeah, and all of this like proper protocol and you know uh, waiting and and seeing and all of this stuff. There's an emergency, and there's no time for that. Now here's something else that I. I don't know if people really have taken in, but it's very important to consider. When we were acting the first part, we mm. had never seen the second part. We had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, I think it hadn't even been written yet. Hadn't right? even been written yet. <laughs> and so when we were doing the first part, you had to kind of plant the seed for every and any possible eventuality. So for instance, I remember Jonathan saying to me, we should play in the scene. When I say you're in my way, you're in my way. We had to play that. He said to me, we should play, pick a scene where there's a little heat between us, where there is a potential for a relationship. And I was like, oh yeah, I bet you say that to all the girls. But he was like, no, seriously, we don't know if they're going to fall in love in the second episode or are we going to kill each other? We have no idea. So you kind of have to play everything all at the same time to, so that it doesn't come out of nowhere what happens in the second episode. Oh my you know gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, think about it. We had no idea what was going to happen if they were going to go run off and be in love and fall in, or are we going to murder each other? Are we going to kill each other? We had no idea what was going to happen. So you kind of have to, it reminded me when I was on The Guiding Light, it was the same thing. You know, I'd be fighting with um, this guy and it would be like, but you had to play that maybe there was underneath the fighting a little bit of an attraction that you didn't want to have because the next week you'd be in bed together. You have right. to play all these different things. And, you know, you pick a line here and there where you look at each other and you feel something. So you have to plant the seed for every kind of possible eventuality when you don't have the script. If I knew what the second part was going to be, it would have changed how the whole first part went, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had no idea. We had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, and <clears throat> I, actually, I think I have a, a couple of questions re related to that because, you know, there's, I think there's been a, a lot of, uh, you know, interest and discussion about that because, you know, leaving off of that first part, it's considered, probably still considered the best cliffhanger in, in Star Trek history, if not, you know, TV history with mm -hmm. kind of leaving it open, like, is Riker going to, to kill Picard? What's this show going to be? What's going to happen, right? Right. And so there was this, that first part that was written and that you had filmed, the second part hadn't been, hadn't been written yet. And the first part aired. And I think there was all of this anticipation for, for months in, in the Star Trek community. And my first question is, were you aware of that anticipation that people had for the second part? I was in the summertime. I was after the first part aired. And everywhere I went, people were like, what happens? I mean, I, I was recognized and, um, you know, I'd never been involved with something where 
we are sending you pages, but they are top secret and burn them after you read them and, and all of that kind of stuff. And Jonathan, you know, I learned a lot from the, when the, on the first episode that Jonathan and uh, Michael and everybody would tell me that, you know, um, uh, we, you sign all these things and you have to keep this top secret. And they were like, you have no idea. This is going to blow up. And, and they warned me. They said, you are going to be um, a villainous because nobody has ever questioned um, the authority of Riker or his first officer uh, ever before. Now, there's also, aside from the whole story part, I think I can say this, that there's this whole other theory that their contracts were up and they were trying to show the cast that, you know, you don't sign your contract, you don't come back, we can always replace you. We can just move on with somebody else. But the story is so well written, I don't, I, I don't know about that. I don't think that's the reason why the script was written. I think it was um, a great idea after the show had been running for a few seasons to have a cliffhanger, shake things up a little bit. But there is that theory out there. And then everybody signed it, so it was all wrapped up. Um, in the second episode, I actually don't think I was very good um, when I watched the show. I uh, can see, I can see my actor nervousness. I mean, it really was like the first job I had after I got to Hollywood. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it was really young. I mean, I eight, I was eight years older than my oldest son, which blows my mind. <laughs> it really just freaks freaks me out. It's interesting that you say that because I, I had a chance to rewatch those episodes just a couple of days ago. And I mean, I think you do give a, a really great performance. And if there's any nervousness that shows, it's it, you can see that as, you know, Shelby having a little nervousness being in this position, pushing mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, yeah, it reads get into what, the what character. She wants. Yeah. Can you tell, so, you won't be able to tell the first scene that was shot, my first scene that was shot. It doesn't go in order all the time. The first scene right. we shot was, um, <laughs> um, it's in, oh God, it's so long ago. So I don't know what the room is. The ready room maybe? And everybody's there. And I have this speech. Projections suggest that a board ship like this one could continue to function effectively, even if 78% of it were rendered inoperable. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think that that's in the, my, yes. the observation yep. lounge, which is where that they That was meet. my yeah. very first scene. And I know that because that line was so hard for me to learn that line. I will never forget that line because it's taken up so much real estate in my brain. It was so right. hard to learn that <laughs> stuff. So hard to learn. You had to do a lot of technical, technical oh, terminology, yeah. which we yeah. like to call techno babble. And you yeah. certainly had your fair share of it. How was it preparing for those type of lines and not even well, knowing you know, anything about Star Trek? I, because I didn't know anything about Star Trek or this world, I, um, it, I, I tell the story a lot at conventions. I, uh, I'll never forget the lines because it was like learning the times tables. But I got to say, if you think about it, if you really think about separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion, it actually makes logical sense. So I had to paint the picture in my head of what it was I was talking about. Separate the saucer section. Push that away. Assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion. Makes logical sense. So the picture mm-hmm. in my head helped me remember the words. Then when I went on to do another sci-fi show where I played an elder wearing white robes, I had to also say things like that that actually made no sense. And I remember asking a question. I said, why am I asking you? This is the show Charmed. I asked this guy um, all these questions. And I'm saying, but I'm supposed to be omniscient and omnipresent. Why am I asking him questions if I know everything? And they were like, mm-hmm. oh, don't ask questions like that on this show. So Star oh. Trek, <laughs> they have all the answers. It actually does make logical sense. And so there's where you know, Gene Roddenberry and all the people that worked on that show were, you know, amazing because it really was a world that could exist Mm -hmm. if you have the science. So pretty amazing. That's how you learn lines. I actually, I teach kids now. I teach Shakespeare at a, a high school in LA and I use that line, separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion as a vocal exercise because, um, 
I that that line also I will never forget. It will be emblazoned on my tombstone because it <laughs> was so hard to learn. But it's like learning the times tables. You just have to drill it. You have to say mm-hmm. it over and over and over again. It's mouth and vocal gymnastics and you literally have to train your mouth to go this way, that way, this way, that way. So mm-hmm. that it, the preparation can be about the acting and the intention, like what is it I'm trying to achieve here? But it also has to be muscle memory too, a part of it. I don't know how oh, wow. Brett and LeVar did it. I do not know how they did it. <laughs> you know what was the hardest scene for me? Was the poker scene because I do not have a clue about <laughs> cards. Cards mystify me. I just went and saw Molly's game and I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I had to really act in that scene, make it look like I knew what I was doing. And I was supposed to be a poker whiz and I I don't I can't even play old maid. I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it at all. That's interesting because I mean I think this the this the scene is is very convincing, and actually, I think it's the first time that we see Riker bested by anybody at poker. Mm-hmm. So it's meant to emphasize that you're kind of on Shelby's on her way up, and you know can best Riker even in these kinds of games, right? Well, you, you watch it again, you'll know I have no idea what I did to win, <laughs> how I won, why I won. I have no idea, no clue. Wow, that's, that's so, something you sold that. that. I actually, I. <laughs> You you sold that uh, that scene. I actually uh, th- replaying that uh, whole entire epi- or that uh, scene in my head. I was like, you sold that to oh, me. That's I so mean, good. It's, good. It, yeah, that, that's amazing. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> that is so good. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. That's a huge compliment because I really didn't know. But Jonathan and I talked a lot about the tone. Like she is innocent. She's like, oh, we're playing poker. Of course, I'm going to try my best. Of course, I'm going to win. You know, not thinking that there's anything wrong or sinister with anything that, you know, Shelby was doing. Just, you know, just trying to be the best all the time, always being at her best. So that and and eating nothing but fruit for the two weeks of shooting was really, really challenging. People would ask me out to dinner. I was like, no, I cannot. I can't. Those jumpsuits are really unforgiving. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We've heard some stories. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I, uh, have another question from our uh, Facebook listeners group, the Babel Conference. Okay. Um, so, and, and this was a question that several people had asked a variation of. So, uh, Zach Marr asked, uh, were there any talks of you returning to Star Trek as Shelby? Did you have any ideas where you'd like to take the character in a return appearance? Um, nobody ever said anything to me. So, no, it was never, never discussed. Um, I, I actually went back and, and auditioned for, oh, God, it was so long ago. What was the one... I think it was Kate Mulgrew got the part. Okay, for Voyager. Oh, for Voyager. Oh, yes. oh so you so you auditioned for auditioned actually for, for Captain that. Janeway on Voyager? Yeah. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was that experience like compared oh, God. to you I know, don't remember. for Shelby? Well, at first, I, <laughs> okay. I, I, re- I remember this. I remember thinking, seriously, do I have to audition? But I, you know, it's just another job. It's just another thing you go through. Um, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I, I, you know, remember I was really young and really inexperienced. So I had a lot to prove. Yeah, because I think it, we've even speculated on this show, like what would have, because I think part of the the reason that uh, the cliffhanger was really compelling for, for the episode was that there were rumors actually that Patrick Stewart wanted out of the show oh. and that that might mean in the second part that when Riker fires, he actually you know, kills Picard in, in some way. And that would have meant that, you know, Riker would be the captain, Shelby might be the, the first mm-hmm. officer. And mm-hmm. we've just speculated what that would be like if the show went on like that. Yeah. <laughs> instead of what it was like before with Picard as 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 the captain. I mean, if 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 they had gone that way and that that would have happened, um I mean, is that something you've thought about or that, that you would, oh, have, been I would have loved in to continuing that. that direction? Yeah, I would have loved that. I would have loved that. You know, I um uh I just happy to work, you know, really happy to work. So yeah, I would have, I would have definitely um, considered it. I'm thinking, trying to put my 
myself back into my 28 year old brain, theater snob brain. But I think that my agents would have been like, you absolutely have to do this, you know? Yeah. Well, you've mentioned quite a bit talking with Jonathan Frakes and stuff. So was the cast like really tight knit? They, they say they were at conventions and stuff. And like, how was it going into, you know, by then they had been three years together. How was it going in and walking into some uh, cast that was so, so tight knit? Oh, they were just wonderful. They were all wonderful. I love them all. Um, uh, Jonathan had worked with my dad. Remember when I was talking about their showcases and stuff? They had mm-hmm. done plays together in the early days. And uh, so he knew my dad and Patrick and I had friends in common. And it was um, it was just lovely. They were wonderful. I remember, I think it was the first day of shooting. They all took me to Nicodell's. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, at the gates of Paramount. It was like a real old school restaurant where they make a Caesar salad at your table and pictures of those big eyed orphans on the wall and really old school. And uh, they just were, could not have been nicer. And then I see them from time to time at the conventions. And we all were at the uh, premiere of Blunt Talk, the show that Patrick Stewart did. Oh, uh-huh. I have a really funny story about that party, if you wouldn't mind indulging please me please share oh please yeah, please, please do. do okay <laughs> so i am friends with adrian scarborough who played patrick stewart's butler in blunt talk and we were invited to the premiere of that and seth mcfarland was the producer i had never met him before and uh he got up on stage and he talked about before the show started the, the pilot he talked about um how uh, much he loved Star Trek and how much he loved Patrick Stewart. And he wanted to work with him and um, been trying to come up with a project for them to work together before. And he was like, you know, said he was a total next gen geek, knew all the words, blah, blah, blah. And Marina was there and everybody was there. We're all there to support Patrick. So at the party afterwards, which was at the Chateau Marmont, I'm with my sons who are, one's an actor and one's a filmmaker. So they are like, their eyes wide open. You know, they're so happy to be there. I dragged them over to Seth MacFarlane, who had never met before. And I said, so you're a big Star Trek Next Gen fan? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm Lieutenant Commander Shelby. And he looked at me and he went, that means you're Elizabeth Dennehy. I suppose that's why someone like you sits in the shadow of a great man, passing off one command after he started saying all of my lines to me. And we started doing all of our scenes and lines. Isn't that hilarious? Oh, my my God. My kids were standing there like, oh, my God. They couldn't believe it happened. Now, that was really nervy of me because he could have looked at me like, yeah, whatever. But he started doing every single line, line by line. He knew my lines better than I did. Oh, my gosh. That's that was so amazing. cool. That was really, really funny. <laughs> that was Do you a great watch night. the Orville? Because Seth has that new show, The Orville, out. I haven't. I'm so bad. <laughs> I don't watch any TV. I'm really, really bad. I we you know we pop in DVDs and we watch movies, but I'm, I yeah. watch Project Runway and The Voice. <laughs> I'm so oh. lame. <laughs> I have to watch The Orville. I, I everybody keeps telling me. I'll tell you the reason. I I TV is so good right now and there's so many good shows and I'm such a OCD person that I know I would never leave my house if I started mm-hmm. I've never seen Mad Men or Homeland or Network or Handmaid's Tale or any of those great shows everybody raised about because I would never do anything else yeah and I have too much other stuff that I have to do agree so. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you something something yeah. related, though. Um, so, I mean, you had said when you got the part of, of Shelby for The Next Generation, you had never seen Star Trek. I'm just curious, after that experience, if you had gone back and, and watched any Star Trek after that. No. <laughs> no. It's okay if the answer is no. I no. was just curious if it had spurred you to do that. <laughs> I mean, I am really good friends with uh, Colin Meany and Rosalind Chow. Actually, I, I think we're going to go to London and see Rosalind's doing a show in at the National Theater in London, and so I would watch, you know, you know them. But no, I, I, it, I didn't. I'm really lame when it comes to TV. I, I, if I don't TV it, I, uh, you know, I, I'm actually the dialogue coach on the middle. I run lines with the actors to make sure they know their lines, and I had never oh, I seen an show. episode. 
I had never seen an episode before I started working on it. So I started TiVoing it and watch it now, but I'm just, I, I don't know. TV is just, it's, there's, I was on the SAG nominating committee for TV this year. And so we had to select the people who were going to be nominated, nominated. And it was like a, a phone book. Because every actor in a TV series, uh, uh, limited series or long running cable, everything, there must have been 800 names for each category. I mean, it's impossible. You can't watch all the good TV that's on now. Right. Yeah. Wow. You know, I I, I, I uh, teach high school Shakespeare and between my job on the middle and then on the weekends, I have private students. I just don't have time. Yeah. That's okay. So, you have a life. That's good. It's <laughs> really, really good. Perfect, perfectly you know, we just, fine. We just got uh, both our kids um, are now in college. We are empty nesters for the first time ever this year. So that's a huge, huge achievement. And maybe now I'll be able to um, sit down and enjoy a TV show. But it's been um, full, you know, when you're a parent, it's like a full-time job. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, I actually have a seven-year-old daughter. Um, and, oh, wow. Uh, one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like, um, so one of the things I've been doing is I've been introducing her to Star Trek. And before this interview, I actually had her um, sat, sat her down and watched uh, Best of Both Worlds uh, Part 1 and 2. And, you know, from front to end. So I asked her, and this is this is this will be a part of the question. Um, I asked her what did what what did you think about? I don't I don't know if she know knew your name. I first I think I said Commander mm-hmm. Shelby first, and she didn't understand what I was talking about. And then I was like, this woman right here. And I, I paused to write her. I was like, what did you think of her? He's like, I really like her. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. She, she that's absolutely great. loves. She absolutely loves how. How you are, uh, how uh, I guess I guess aggressive uh, in 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 whatnot in in your acting. And, and my question is, is that do you think? Or I'm sorry, not my question. I'm sorry. This is from a Baylor uh-huh. conference listener. Um, do you think Commander Shelby is a good role model for girls and women? Absolutely, I think so because she has a lot of knowledge. She's a specialist. I do think that you know diplomacy is a really important skill. And, and to not railroad over people, you know, steamroll over people with your ideas um, is maybe not the best way to get your ideas implemented. So I think a little bit of both. I'm, I definitely, she's a really good role model because she's so skilled and educated. And if people aren't going to respect you and listen to you and you have no choice, then absolutely. You've got to do what you need to do to save lives. Um, but I also think that that working with people and, you know, being diplomatic and maybe not so aggressive, it all depends on the state of the emergency. I mean, when, you know, we went back to on the board ship to rescue Patrick, you do what you need to do. This is a life and death situation. Um, you know, and ultimately it was Riker that made the decision to fire on the ship. I don't know what Shelby would have done. I think we got ourselves in a situation where there was nothing else to be done. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. she's a good role model, right. and to you know, speak up when you when you know your stuff. You know, you got to really speak up. That's what they hired you to do. You got to do the job you were hired to do, and not pussyfoot around. And like I said, times times have changed a lot. You know, get the job done. Get the job done. I'm not there to make friends. I love it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> So you had mentioned, and since I live here in Las Vegas, that you have been to some conventions. So I want to know, when are you coming back to Star Trek Las Vegas, and how is it going to the conventions? Um, I love them. I I mean, my very first one was right after, I guess, the show had aired. I'm trying to remember if, yeah, it must have been after both parts had aired. And it was in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was with George Takei who is just a hoot. He's so adorable. We had a great time. I was really, really nervous. I was really scared that because I wasn't, you know, a sci-fi fan that people were going to think that I was a, um, imposter. (laughs) Um, but people are so nice. Um, 
you know, I would I had been told that people don't know that this is a job. They really believe, you know, people will, will ask you questions like, what was your phrase of frequency set to when you shot the boys? And I'm like, dude, it was a plastic <laughs> TV remote as far as I was concerned. You know, there are people who believe that it's actually happening in real life. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was a little bit freaked out. I'd been scared, but people haven't been that way. They've been lovely, really, really nice and uh, genuine and welcoming. And I love going to the conventions. Yeah, yeah, I've never well, had a bad, bad experience. I will, you know, I have to be asked back. So oh. you get on them. Oh, um, oh I will. Uh, I'm on Vegas, it. Vegas is, is, you know, it's Vegas. It's really a trip. Um, yeah. But, my, you know, we make a, an excuse for a family vacation. We all go together <clears throat> and we all have fun. I remember my boys were just um, permitted drivers. The last one I went to, so I made them do all the driving uh, the last time we went to Vegas. And yeah, so Perfect. if you can do that drive, you can do anything. That's right. So yeah, I know I love doing the conventions. Yeah. Okay, Bring I'm emailing all. creation right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, they're really fun. And it's fun to have a reunion when you, when you see all your you know your old friends, I think there was one time when uh, Michael Dorn and Jonathan Frakes were on stage, and I snuck up behind them. They didn't know I was there, and uh, you know you get to see them all again, catch up. It's fun, yeah. really fun. Hmm. And I think we're going to be going into New York. My husband is Irish, and he and Colomini knew each other when they were kids. They've known each other really, really, really a long time. Yeah, they've been dear, dear friends since they were uh, teenagers. And so Colm is doing I Spend Cometh with Denzel Washington in New York. So we'll be going in to see that and going to see Roz. And it's a, it's a great life. Wow, that's that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, I had another question from our, um, our, our listeners group. Okay. So, um, and I know you may have been asked this before, but I'm just curious your thoughts on this so uh, ruby elizabeth asks are you aware of shelby's uh, continued slash expanded role in the novel such as the new frontier series and if so what are your thoughts on how the various uh, authors have developed her character i haven't been reading them but i think i saw in another interview you were aware that she ends up becoming a captain and then an admiral right mm-hmm. that's great yeah good which is great right yeah and yeah. she has an important uh she has an important role in those. I've read some of them. They're actually really excellent, but oh, I think good. people really enjoy them and we're just, just curious about it. Yeah. But of course, if you don't have time for a lot of TV shows. <laughs> no, I don't have too. time. <laughs> no, I barely have time to read the books I need to read. Yeah, no, sorry. I haven't, I haven't been keeping up, but uh, it sounds like a great idea. Well, we have another question. Michael Poteet is uh, wondering which of your many non-Star Trek roles are you proudest of and why? Oh, oh, non-Star Trek. Um, gosh, I would have to say, because I, I, theater or, or on film, uh, my favorite film job ever was a TV pilot I shot for TNT with Robert Urich called Lazarus Man. Mm. And I don't even know if it exists anymore because I've tr- actually tried to find the DVD. It was a, a TV show that was way ahead of its time. You know who was also on it was Natalia Nogaluch. She was oh, on yes. it. Oh, yes. Yeah. And yeah. it was a brilliant idea. So this man wakes up and he's buried alive out in the wild, wild west. He has no idea who he is. He has no idea how he got there. Robert York played the part. He's discovered by my son, and we take him in, and we nurse him back to health. Turns out he was one of Abraham Lincoln's Secret Service guys. Oh, goodness. He spends the whole series. So it's sort of sci-fi, but historical. And he spends Mm -hmm. the whole series trying to piece together the story of what happened and how he got out there. And we shot it in Santa Fe. And I got to wear beautiful costumes and had a long wig and I got to shoot a gun and drive a buckboard, a horse and buggy. It was so much fun. And Santa Fe was so beautiful. And Robert York was so lovely to work with. I loved that job. I was really, really proud of that. And then theater, um, there's a couple of things. Um, South Coast Rep is a theater down in um, 
Orange County here, and I did Streetcar Named Desire and played Stella. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that was really fun. I loved that show. That was great. And uh, also, I did Dancing at Lunasa there with my husband. Nice. And uh, that was great. So those those jobs have been wonderful. I loved I love those jobs. Nice. So so I'm curious outside of of acting, what other you know hobbies and interests that you have? So for years, I have done. I was always the person that friends would call when they had an audition, and they, they would come over and I would work with them. I'm a really good audition coach, and so mm. my son. Uh, who is now 20, when he auditioned for LOXA, the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, I was being called by friends, would I work with their kids? And now I've started this, like, I do this every weekend, um, audition coaching for kids who are auditioning for colleges. You know, it's the contrasting monologue, Shakespeare monologue, and then finding the monologues and then working up a really great audition. So I do that a lot, and I really love doing that. I love working with young people. Um and then after I started working on the middle as a dialogue coach, I was asked to teach the Shakespeare class at LOXA. So I do that now. So I literally go from the middle on Mondays and Wednesdays. I drive to LOXA, teach my Shakespeare class, which involves participating in Shakespeare festivals in Southern California. And uh, we put on an evening of Shakespeare scenes at the end of March. So it's a lot of work and I love it. So between audition coaching and the middle and doing that, I have very little time left over. But we love to travel. We go um, to Europe every summer. My husband's uh, mom still lives in Ireland. We go at New York uh, Christmas time, see my family. My father lives in Connecticut. So we travel whenever we can. Um, you know, my spring break is the end of March. We're going to go see Roz. We're going to go see Column. You know, all of that stuff. So mm -hmm. traveling is... Uh, I live for traveling and I get to go see my son in Chicago. He's doing a play native son at, um, oh. at DePaul school show. He's a junior and it's his first main stage show. So nice. all of that keeps us very, very busy. Yes. Excellent. Well, I mean, it's a lot of great stuff that you enjoy, right? So yeah. That's good. We'll, and we go to the theater. I probably see two or three plays a week. Oh, wow. Wow. It's we busy. Yeah, we go to the theater a lot. Like I, um, Antius, you know, the company that Armin Shimmerman works at, um, I've worked there and uh, Kitty Swink. And so I saw Hot House on Tuesday night and I just went down to um, South Coast last night and saw Shakespeare in Love with Bill Brotchup was in it and Stephen Caffrey and lots of really good friends, many of whom have been on Star Trek. Nice. Yes, I'm recognizing some more names. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Bo Foxworth has done it, but Linda Park, Daniel Beth, uh -huh. all of mm -hmm. those people, they're all, you know, Antians. And we, if you go see them in shows, you're never going to be disappointed. Mm. I love Linda Park. <laughs> oh, my God. Their cat, they did Cat on Hudson Roof with Daniel as um, Brick, and she was Maggie the Cat. It was sensational. Um, with uh, um, Don. That makes me want to go see it. <laughs> Don Didewick, Don Didewick and Harry Groner were in that too. So lots of great theater out there that, you know, once theater goes away, it's, that's gone. So you don't want to miss mm -hmm. it. Got to experience it, right? Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, tell us about any current or upcoming work you'd like to let our listeners know about. Uh, nothing really, um, you know, I'm just tr trying to get through the end of March when the middle ends, the final season, and all the auditions will be over, and I get to sleep until I wake up. That is a luxury <laughs> I never get, because I'm up at 5 o'clock most mornings, and when all that's done, then I will think about the next the next step. But I'm open to all offers, and hopefully get back on stage again. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, it's a pretty boring life, but it's very, uh, very busy. <laughs> no, it, it's, it sounds great. Well, it sounds <laughs> like you're doing stuff. what you love and you're passionate about it. So there's no boredom there. No. And I'm um, applying to a summer course uh, at the Globe in London uh, for teaching Shakespeare. So I'm really hoping that I get that. Um, 
I think that would be really fun. And Mark Rylance is doing Othello there this summer. So um, spending a lot of time in London, hopefully. That's my, that's my, my plan. Very nice. Good vibes. Yeah, we're sending you. good thoughts that uh, <laughs> that that comes through. Yeah, yeah. me too. Thanks so much. Just doing it at the Globe. Wow. Yeah, it would be great. Yeah. So, where can listeners find you online? Oh my gosh, I don't have anything. I'm so sorry. I don't even have a You're website. On Twitter, right? Yeah, but I'm really lame. I'm really lame. <laughs> I I'm literally I am like I had to make a resume, and I really don't even know how to do that. I'm lame on Twitter. Um, you know, well, that's I'm, where I found you. So it's not not so lame. You responded oh, to me on Twitter. Oh, that's so sweet. So. <laughs> that's so great. You're really nice. Um, yeah, I have it just kind of to keep my eye on what's going on. Got to keep our eyes on what's going on. Well, okay. So if listeners are interested, they can go to Twitter they and can search find your me on name. Twitter, yeah. they, they should be able to find you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for being on Earl Grey today. We really oh, appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Nice talking really to you. It really was a pleasure. Okay. I'm very oh, excited, you. and I'm going to push to get you back to Star Trek Las Vegas. It's my <laughs> yes, goal. More conventions. Yes, more con- yes. conventions would be great. Terrific. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Well, it's been so amazing talking with Commander Shelby herself, Elizabeth Dennehy, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. There's no one else in the scene. And Marino was talking. It's like, we couldn't even get like five or six extras. They were siphoning all of our extras. Our extras money was going to DS9 to put more aliens on the promenade. Now, yeah, all those extras were hanging out at Quarks. That's right. Because they knew, they knew, don't go to a Hutch Hutchinson party. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. When I was a projectionist, I, I literally had a masking taped X on the bottom of my seat. And then when the seats were taken out and replaced with, you know, new and improved seats, I was like, can I get that seat right there? So I do now have that seat in my living room right over there. You live with a very patient woman, Mike. Warp 5. So I'm guessing that a lot of the interactions were probably about 50% pa- fact and 50% dramatic license. So Okay, hold on a second. Are you telling me Hollywood's not reliable? you telling me I can't believe Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter is, is not real? Brandon. Really, that's where we go? Brandon, <laughs> we need to have a talk right now. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. So that idea of nostalgia is very much describing people in the same situation as the Voyager crew. You know, they're far away from home. They're wanting to get home. It's that kind of homesick longing. But maybe that's one reason that that we see this kind of transition from in the early seasons, this nostalgia for this kind of idealised Earth that may or may not really exist anymore, to in the later seasons, the nostalgia is for the journey itself. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps other listeners find our show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com trek.fm. So Richard, where can people contact you when you're not deciding... <laughs> 
<laughs> Whether to kill Picard. Mm, the death of Picard sounds enticing. <laughs> no. uh, well, they could find me on Facebook. I pop on here and there on the Babel Conference. And I am also on uh, Twitter. Uh, and my handle is Eric's Ransom. Justin, where can people contact you when you're not fighting the Borg? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Uh, currently tweeting out my Season 4 rewatch of The Next Generation. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And Amy, where can people find you when you're not serving as Riker's first officer? Well, you can find me here on the network doing Postcards from the Edge. That's our fan response mailbag show for the Star Trek Discovery and you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is right there in the Babel Conference. If you'd like to keep, if you'd like to help us keep all of the, all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit Patreon.com/slash/TrekFM. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/TrekFM to get all the details. Perks includes er, perks include early access to episodes exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special Patreon, uh, patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really, we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we would like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, the amazing Justin Ozer, and Michael Huter. Thank you for everything and, uh, and all your support for, uh, for Trek FM and, of course, Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude. If you can't make the big decisions, Commander, I suggest you make room for someone who can.